Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Laura Tafe. Dr. Tafe received her MD from the Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit, Michigan. She completed her residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, followed by fellowships in oncologic, surgical pathology, and molecular genetic pathology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. She is currently an associate professor of pathology and laboratory medicine, the assistant director of clinical genomics and advanced technologies laboratory at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. So Dr. Tafe is here um, as a part of my series on folks who specialize in GYN pathology, although I think uh, you might be the first person I've had on who did not do a formal fellowship in GYN pathology, but I am really excited to talk to you about um, what you have specialized in and your areas of expertise. So Dr. Tafe, or Laura, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm um, great. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you today. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So can you tell me more about yourself aside from the biographical information I've given above? How did you come to work where you do? Um, specifically, how did you choose medicine? Did you come from a scientific family? Um, no, I really come from a family of teachers originally. Um, so I am from a non-medical family. However, my parents, I think, have always had an interest in science and literature and those combined loves. And my mom actually went back to school when I was in high school to get a wildlife biology degree. Um, so science has kind of always been in, in the blood. A wildlife right? biology degree? Yeah. What was, what was her plan for that degree? Um, she actually combined it with a, a master's in, in English. And so she became a writer and, and an editor for um, scientific journals. So. That's a, that right about wildlife? Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Was whole, that, whole field oh, I mean, to be even able to imagine such a career. How amazing. Right. That's great. That's great. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, you know, from there I had that, that model that you could kind of change your, change your emphasis and do whatever you really wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but growing up, I, I, always had an interest in science and particularly anatomy caught my attention at a very young age. And I remember like reciting the bones head to tail <laughs> to my parents and car rides and stuff like that. Wow. I still can't do that. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I've always also had an interest in, in art as well. So mm -hmm. I think kind of going, going through high school, I was always, um, thinking about those two fields, I've always liked biology. And for a while, I thought I was going to be a vet, but then I lost too many animals as a kid and found that too tragic. So yes, that is fractured. one of the great sadnesses of life, I think, exactly. is losing a pet. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, and then in, in college, I continued to study biology and kind of kept the art as a side thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, how did you, I, and you, you ended up in medicine, and then once you were in medical school, I always find it interesting to hear how folks land on pathology. How did you come to, did you always know that it was a field, or did you um, kind of stumble upon it like some folks do? So my origin to pathology story actually starts before medical school. Mm. Um, so I I decided to take some time off after undergrad, and I actually got married very young, and so we decided to take a few years to kind of be married and figure out what we're going to do next. How novel. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I got pretty fortunate. I got to work in a pathology laboratory. Um, in this was in Colorado. It was part of a private practice. And so I, I worked with a few 
pathologist, general pathologist before I ever went to med school. Mm-hmm. And one of them in particular just had such a wealth of knowledge, both in science as well as literature and philosophy. And he was just amazing and was really one of my early role models of pathology. Um, And in undergrad, too, I had taken a histology class that I thought was amazing and I Mm -hmm. loved. And so kind of those two things together really solidified my interest in medicine. And then I tried to keep an open mind throughout med school, but really um, nothing else quite fit the bill like pathology. So, yeah, yeah, that's really that's really interesting because I think um, even I guess I knew what pathology was. I had worked as a phlebotomist when I was younger. And so I knew what pathologists were, but in my head, they were people who did autopsies, right? Yeah. Which is, I think, what a lot of the general public knows about us. Absolutely. Um, and and I, I was pursuing sort of a, a clinical track and then things just didn't make sense for me uh, personality wise. And and then I thought, well, wait, why don't, why don't I go give pathology another look? So it's it's really great that you at least had it in the back of your mind the whole time, because I think we probably miss out on a lot of people who would enjoy it a lot because they just don't even know what we do, if that makes yeah, sense. I definitely so. think so. And, yeah. and as pathologists, we, we can definitely improve on doing a little bit better with that. You know, it, yeah. it's great when we get to teach the med students yes, um, and show them a little bit of a window into that, but still so many of them don't get a chance to see it. Yeah. 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 I'm always impressive. I mean, impressed is not the right word. Um, saddened by how many of my clinical colleagues who are, you know, fully fledged adults like me, allegedly, who <laughs> still don't really understand what we do, you yeah. know, <laughs> they're years and years into their clinical practice. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then um, how did you choose to specialize? I know uh, you were in Detroit for medical school and then you pursued an oncologic surgical pathology, which is a, a general fellowship and molecular training at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, how did you choose those two areas of specialty? Yeah, sure. So I guess I would say through residency, I had many interests as I continued uh-huh. to have in my career. Uh-huh. Um, and so a couple of the areas that offered subspecialization, um, I, I wasn't particularly interested in. Like I, I couldn't really see myself doing derm path or heme paths. Um, and I, I liked many things, and I was exposed to really a fantastic molecular program mm-hmm. here at Dartmouth um, that captured me. And so I really couldn't decide on a subspecialty initially, so that's why I went for the, the general oncologic surge path. Mm-hmm. Um, and then actually when I was in the midst of my first year, I got the opportunity to stay another year to do the molecular genetic path, which was fantastic, and I'm very happy I did. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was probably the right, the right calling for me for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but reading through your CV, it seems like the molecular and the and the oncologic kind of melded together to make you someone who's able to do a lot of different things um, because of that expertise. And um, on your CV, it seems like you speak and write about a variety of topics. Um, so I'm wondering, at in your practice, do you do general sign out or are you doing subspecialized sign out? So we are a subspecialization um, kind of model, but um, that said, being said that, many of us do have a couple of things that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so very few of us actually do just one thing. So I, mm-hmm. I do GYN, like you said, as well as um, CT, ENT. 
Um, so cardiothoracic and ENT, for some reason, go together in my institution. So. <laughs> in my head, they go together, but that yeah, it makes almost about as much sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's when you really yeah. think about it. But anyways, they go together as a service here. Uh-huh. Um, and then, like you said, too, molecular is kind of my overall umbrella, particularly in the solid tumor area. Um, uh-huh. So I do continue to maintain those variable interests. I love GYN and I, I was really early in my training, really engaged with the lung cancer story of molecular diagnostics, which is probably yes. what really got me hooked into that area. Yeah. I, uh, you and I are around the same age. We don't have to say it on air just from looking about when you were in high school and, or maybe, uh, I mean, undergrad, but it seems like the lung cancer story was kind of happening when we were in training, right? The right. revolution of, I remember when ALK became a thing. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it it's like a started. blockbuster. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It really did. And that, that has been like the poster child for the whole molecular diagnostics and precision yeah. medicine is what happened in lung cancer. Yeah. And it's just spreading like wildfire. Like every month yeah. there's new indications and, and new things to be testing. So it's very exciting yeah. time. It is exciting. And I think what was exciting and what was different about because I know you have some interest in cytopathology. I actually thought you had done a cytopathology fellowship because you're, <laughs> you, you have such an interest in it, and that's unusual in folks who don't specialize. But um, it, it changed practice models across pathology when molecular pathology started to be emphasized in lung tumors, right? Now, all of a sudden, we yeah. were doing special um, on-site evaluations and preserving tissue for molecular testing. And that sort of practice model, I think, has been adopted by other organ systems that then started using molecular diagnostics, right? But I remember, even yeah. as a cyto fellow, the plethora of publications about how many touch preps to make and how to handle the tissue to optimize for molecular testing. And it was, like you said, it was the it was the the, the tip of the spear <laughs> teaching the rest of us how to do it. And then cytopathology became, which it always had been to some extent, but um, surgical pathology on tiny tissue, which is a, right. is is like a different version of cytopathology than maybe residents think of when they think of you know cervical cytology or effusion cytology, which is still part of it, right? Right. Yeah. And I, to be totally honest, I've never signed out a cyto day in my life, so okay. I did not okay. come from that angle at all. Yeah. I definitely come from the the molecular angle of how do yeah. we do more with less tissue? Yes. How are we the stewards of this tissue to get yes. all the information we can possibly get out of it? Yeah. 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 And it is, it's good that uh, cytopathologists and molecular pathologists were able to work on that together because I think that is a great success story because I, you know, I remember when we needed X, X number of uh, like size and all this stuff. And it seems like it just kept getting smaller. So. Oh yeah. Well, our, our testing is getting better yeah. as well yeah. too. Yeah. More comprehensive. Yeah. Better for patients for sure <laughs> to not be having giant lung biopsies. So, <laughs> so now we'll focus to your, or we'll shift to your areas of research. And it was hard for me. Usually when I go through people's CVs, I can kind of pick out like a, like a common thread, like a tumor type or an like a, you know, like uterine cervix or ovary or fallopian tube. But for you, it seems like, well, first of all, it seems like you hit the ground running. You hit, you hit academics and you just, you've been very productive, which is admirable. Those two years off or however long it was between medical school must have really centered you. And <laughs> so, but it seems like, you know, you and I share an interest in GYN pathology, but also yes. you've done a lot of work on molecular pathology. 
Um, your Venn diagram seems very big, but that seems to be the common theme. So in so much as you have one, what? how do you decide which projects to pursue and how do you find them and plan them and stuff? <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I think a lot of a lot of my focus is driven by the molecular area and the applications to it. Um, I'm I'm a hundred percent clinician, so I don't have any research grant funding me. So everything I do, pretty much, I feel has to have some translational impact. Uh-huh. Um, but you do tend to work on people, work with people who have grants, right? I do. Um, yeah. Mostly, yes, mostly as a collaborator in that context, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. The I think the pillars kind of of my my interests are are in GYN. I am very, have been very interested in hereditary cancers, such as the whole Lynch story in GYN, mm-hmm. um, and endometrial cancers. Um, so I have spent a good deal of time focusing on um, mismatch repair and MSI testing and endometrial cancers. And then now also, as you're alluding to, that we're starting to have more and more indications to do more testing in, in endometrial cancers and, and mm-hmm. as well as many other GYN neoplasms. Yeah. Um, and then some of it also have, has to do with with who the collaborators are at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, are these people that I can see myself building a, a relationship and a program potentially with, uh, with some common goals as well. Mm-hmm. And when you... Sorry to interrupt. When you started your work, um, when you started in residency back in the day, did you know that you wanted to pursue an academic career? Was this something that you had planned back then? I no. I I think that changed during residency. So as I was telling you the story of my exposure to pathology before I even went to med school, that was in a private practice community mm-hmm. setting, mm-hmm. Um, and and actually. That was kind of one of my interests initially was that broad spectrum of practice that a community pathologist could have. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, right around the time I went to med school, the field of pathology was also changing more towards subspecialization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that practice that I worked in actually got bought by a much larger practice and became something totally different than, than what it was when I knew it. Uh, so, so my model also changed during during residency. I realized I liked, you know, teaching med students. I liked engaging with researchers that were at the institution. I liked discussing patients with my colleagues at tumor boards and and things like that. So, um, my mind definitely shifted towards an academic life after being spending some time in residency. That's really interesting. You're an MD, you're not a PhD, but you're someone who seems to understand the model of academics. And I think for some people who are looking at an academic career, that can be very intimidating. I think yours is a a story of collaboration as well, which I think some trainees and people who might be listening to this think that if you're going into academics, you have this plan from day one and you know exactly what you're going to do. It's interesting to hear you say that it has to do with, you know, the the sort of the milieu or like what's going on what's what's like the story of lynch and then also that you don't do every single project that you end up in publication you did not design from start to finish you know and there are opportunities to learn from others and collaborate and you don't have to have necessarily every single answer which is no you don't and and it's okay to change and i i definitely find myself you know, having periods of time where I'm focusing more on lung and then other periods where I'm focusing more on GYN. And, and, and that's, that's, 
I guess I'm finally accepting that that's natural for me. And, okay. And it's okay, you know. Yeah. It's a model that, that serves me, and it's yeah. not for everybody, perhaps, but I do like it. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a it's a really interesting combination of interests, right? I think mm-hmm. I don't know that many people who do those yeah, two I, systems. No, I think there's maybe one person in Spain that I recently encountered. <laughs> that she also does GYN at long and molecular. <laughs> so there you go. So you found you found a kindred a spirit. So. Uh, yeah, my GYN and cytopathology. I think it actually used to be a lot more common. Now I don't think it is quite as much. Um, surprising. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Well, I think. Another thing that happened during our training was HPV, the advent of HPV testing, which is another molecular sort of um, success story. I will say I was in, I was actually in community practice for four years in Denver, almost four years. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, I will say that I did, you know, a GYN fellowship and a cyto fellowship. And I think the cyto fellowship prepared me just as much for community practice as anything else I did because... I did so many on-site assessments and so many, you know, carcinomas or tumors of unknown primary on small biopsies and just knowing how to work those up. I think that is a really good life skill to have if you're going to end up in community practice because it's a common thing. It happens. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, okay. So we were, we were talking about your interest in GYM pathology, which is um, it, it seems to have sort of coincided or maybe coincidentally been uh, coinciding with this uptick in molecular findings in GYN tumors. I'm thinking particularly of endometrial cancer becoming, but you know, soft tissue tumors, a bunch of other things in the GYN um, oh, yeah, it's just all world. Exploding right now. It's all exploding, but you have finally, spoken. And, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you've spoken in, in about the molecular classification of endometrial tumors, which is a hot topic, both in cutting edge research findings, but also in practical applications. I think we talk about this at at our tumor boards routinely. Um, I hear my colleagues saying, well, what testing are you doing? And it's sort of something that people trade stories about because there doesn't seem to be a consensus right now on what to do upfront on on clinical samples. So um, I'd I'd love to hear you just talk about um, what maybe the story of of molecular testing in, in the endometrial or endometrioid or endometrial tumors, because I think it's very interesting and in how you saw that happen across your career, although that's a big topic. And then how, <laughs> how do you see it being implemented maybe clinically, or do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think that the, the TCGA data is where it all starts, right? Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Genome Atlas projects that yeah. have really characterized and classified the molecular types of so many tumors that we are, we're now still translating into clinical practice. So mm-hmm. the original TCGA data on endometrial cancer, I believe is like from 2012. And, and we're just starting to see some clinical trials based on some of the molecular characteristics coming into play. And, you know, yeah. so for endometrial cancer, there's, um, you know, probably four main molecular phenotypes that we need to be looking for. And, you know, we've been testing for Lynch, for instance, Lynch screening, we've been doing for a long time for mismatch repair and MSI testing. So that's already pretty well established across the board for many institutions, I would suspect by now. But, uh-huh. but the, yeah, but the, you know, the questions are, how are we going to integrate the rest of the, the kind of molecular profile 
And there's been a few algorithms proposed about um, doing poly mutation analysis and then IHC for p53 and mismatch repair and so on. Um, but as you said too, there's no really no main consensus yet, and I think we're still waiting for some more. I, I think at least my institution, we're waiting for more clinical trial results to show that there really is a difference in how we should stratify these patients in terms of their adjuvant follow-up care. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you know, HER2 testing and uterine serous carcinoma, that's pretty well accepted now. And so that's yeah. something you know, we've been doing routine for the last year or so. Um, so I think it, in some instances, it's still a work in progress. There's, there are fortunately some clinical trials that are now in the U.S. as well as the PORTEC trials in Europe that are starting to kind of reveal a little bit more to us, I hope, as it manifests in our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, and, and I do find it interesting that the divide between what I know is happening in community practice and what is happening in academic practice, and that'll be interesting to see how that sort of plays and catches up to when they catch up to one another. Yeah. But like you said, if there's a clear treatment difference, I think it'll happen pretty quickly, right? We're just yeah. waiting for that information. I think yeah. we're waiting for that information so then we can have a good reason to do the testing and yes. and get it covered for patients and, and right. all that as well too. Yeah. Yeah, because it's always it's always nice to have the testing, but if the testing isn't paid for, it's really hard to argue. It's hard, to, it's hard for many institutions to justify that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, having worked in a community practice where, you know, I didn't just get to do the ordering and the the sort of fun diagnostic side of things. I also had to look at the books. I'm it's, sure. uh, I'm sure. it's a little different of an experience. Yeah, <laughs> you you probably definitely learn to prioritize things differently and have a different yeah. way to make your decisions. Yeah, it's been a decent time of my day talking to clinicians about send-out testing in that role because there's some lack of understanding sometimes from our clinical partners about you know, testing and how, how it goes through the lab and what happens after that point. So, sure. yeah, interesting. We, we didn't come here to talk about that, though. We can talk about happier things. Um, <laughs> billing. Exactly. Uh, we probably so, need to know more about our billing. And I, so you are, uh, you're a busy person and, and I see from your list of activities that you are involved in many teaching opportunities, not only at the institutional level with trainees and residents and but also you've taught quite a lot at the local and national level and I I'm just curious it's interesting to me that your parents were teachers I wonder if this has I wonder if there's any correlation there and if, if it's even at the front of your mind but there seems to have been a shift in teaching and how classes have been taught since probably you were in medical school definitely since I was in medical school so what have you learned about teaching since becoming an attending physician and how do you think things have changed and then what do you have any tips for success that you rely on? <laughs> oh, those are loaded questions in a way. <laughs> oh, because no, come on. Um, you obviously, must be good at it. You wouldn't keep being able to teach know. at a national I level. If um, I, I do it because I feel like I want to keep getting better at it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a good way of approaching it. Yeah, I like that. But yeah, from med school, I think, you know, med schools become a little bit more consolidated in terms of like the first two years, like. I know here they've changed the curriculum so that the students only have 18 months of those first didactic years. Um, so teaching has become more of the, you know, have the learner learn themselves rather than um, just pure didactics and get them yeah. into the clinic as soon as possible and, and right. that sort of hands-on stuff. Um, 
some of the things that I rely on when I'm trying to teach is I try to make it as simple as I possibly can. I like it. The kiss principle, if you yeah, will. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and they always try to tell a story. I, like, I always think about as I'm putting a talk together, what's the story I want to tell? Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's that's been a pretty good guide for me just to try to keep it simple. Don't put in too much information that no one's going to use and try to be illustrative and tell a good story. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And the other thing I noticed is that you taught a lot when you're at the national level, which isn't uncommon, but you teach with other people. There's another person teaching with you. And having done that now, I will say, even if it's a topic, say, there are parts of it that I maybe am a little stronger in than the other person, even having that other person on board, it makes it feel 75% easier, which makes no sense, right? But there's something about the mental load That's of true. sharing. No, I that, think that's do you really find that? true. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy that collaborative aspect to teaching. And then the one thing I really miss is the across the scope teaching, because I think there are things that come up in that setting that you can't really sort of mimic over Zoom. It's not as easy right. because right. you just don't have the same informality sort of, but I miss that, but yeah, we'll get back to the, it. Sure. Even just the side tangents and conversations and let me go yeah. grab this book or show you that. or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, they'll say, you know, they'll see some slides sitting on your desk and say, what's that? And you're like, oh, that's a project I'm working on. And then you just start showing some slides and then all of a sudden they're working on the project with you. Or I, I know that happened to me when I was a resident, but. Um, Those purely organic moments are fantastic. Yeah, they are. And they're also going to come back. I just know it. They will. Um, so uh, speaking of which, since we're talking about COVID, I saw you tweeted yourself getting the vaccine. So how do you feel about being maybe partially or completely vaccinated at this point? I don't know where you are in your I, journey. I received my second one next week, okay. in February. So, so far only had one and just had the sore arm for a while. But okay. yeah, very excited that, that it's here and they were able to get it to us, you know, as as pathologist who <clears throat> is not seeing patients currently, I yeah. felt a little hesitant about why am I getting it already. But at the same time, we just need to get the vaccine in people's arms. So yes. I was grateful to get it. That's very hopeful. Hey, isn't it? I just yeah. need I just need little nuggets of hope just oh, to yeah. get me through the day. <laughs> we all do right now. Telling you. <laughs> yes. Oh, buddy. So, um, yeah. So I was going to talk to you a little bit about um, some non non pathology related things. Um, you live in New Hampshire, which is not terribly far from me. I don't think it would take me long to get there at all. That Maybe. would be a pretty quick drive, just around the Yeah, beautiful and yeah. so beautiful. Similar, you know, similar geographically to where I live in Rhode Island. But um, it sounds like you lived in Colorado for a time. So I don't know. Did you grow up in New Hampshire? Like, what are your favorite things to do there? And Sure. For folks who maybe the only thing they know about New Hampshire is that um, it's one of the first primary states in the political races, which I'm sure you're tired of hearing about. Well, yeah. What else should people know about? Oh, about? New Hampshire is the live free or die state. That's our motto. <laughs> <laughs> so aggressive and okay. somehow not. It's like both things at the same time. Yes. <laughs> Um, But no, I did not grow up in New Hampshire. Um, I grew up out in Colorado, so I grew up out west and Uh um, originally from Michigan. So I have family in the Midwest and out west. Uh And I came, well, we came to New Hampshire because my husband's originally from here. So his family is is in New Hampshire. So that's what brought us out here for residency. And I guess, yeah, back now for, for career. 
Um, mm -hmm. It is a beautiful state. Uh, we do have fantastic mountains, which are very important to me having grown up out west. I love the mountains. Yeah. Although yes. it's like mountains light if you grew up in Colorado. It's, it's yeah, They're I'm still sure. pretty good. I, it's I still pretty good. Exactly. Yeah. They're still pretty right. good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're um, close to the ocean. We're close to Montreal if we could ever cross the border again and Boston. <laughs> And yeah, it is a beautiful environment. Definitely partake of all the outdoor activities that are available to us here. So really enjoy living up here. But but it's rural. It's it's not for everybody. Having uh, you know trained in New York, I I do miss the city from time to time. But mm -hmm. it's beautiful up here. It and, really and is. Here before too, it sounded like. Yeah, yeah, I have family there, so it's a uh, it's a beautiful town, and it's it's calm and it's idyllic, right? That's what. It's right. For. Exactly. Yeah. So I also wanted to give you a chance just to talk about, um, you know, the experience of living through 2020. Now we're in 2021. I saw on your Twitter profile, you were also tweeting about the inauguration. And it's just been a really hard 12 months, I think, for almost everyone for a lot of different reasons. But it seems to me, and I, I found this very interesting, and I didn't know that the thing about your mom and her being a, a teacher and going back to school, which is incredible. But you seem to also tweet a lot about art. So I was wondering, you know, how the last year has been for you and what you do when you're not working to sort of relieve stress. Sure. So yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about a little bit about me besides me as pathologist. Yeah, you are a human being. Yeah, exactly. for real. We're all human beings. And sometimes it's easy to forget that when we're in, in medicine and particularly in training. But um but yeah, um, like I said earlier, art has always been a piece of my life. And, you know, 2020 has been such a challenge for so many people. I guess one one thing I have been grateful for is less, less traveling for work. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it has given me time to pause. And, and one of the things that I've taken up in that time is, is an art practice. So I, I make collages. So I cut oh. up paper and <laughs> have a nice I, blue stick and paste things together. I love doing that kind of I stuff, especially, it. and I've sold one of my kids on doing it with me. That's it's really fun. fun. It's really fun. And like, yeah. I made over a hundred collages last year. So <laughs> that was, that's of anything in particular, just, I mean, all kinds of stuff. I've I've shared a few online, but um, uh -huh. a lot of them I just keep for myself and and enjoy yeah. doing it. I did in October. I made a collage a day in October with a theme word of the day. So that was a very fun exercise <laughs> to try That's to great. do and make yeah. myself create every single day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I've been doing that. I've been cooking a lot. I have two kids who are who are teenagers now, so we've been cooking a lot with them. And you know, just to to remind people that, you know, it's important to keep these elements of yourself alive and well. And it's not always easy when you're in training. I mean, my kids were born when I was in training. So there are years yeah. that went by that I couldn't do this. Yeah. And that's okay too, you know? Yeah. I, I think at, at some point someone told me, and he was one of my pathology attendings. I remember he told me his, he had two kids and his youngest child had just turned three. And he turned to me and he said, Natalie, if you ever have kids, just remember, you'll come up for air when they're three and that's okay. And I thought, what are you talking about? And now that my kids are like, I'm like, I understand. understand. <laughs> There's some days you're just getting through the day. And if that's what you are, that's the, the 
the place you're at, that's fine too. I have a list of like 10 people whose Twitter feeds I like just checking because I know it'll be well curated and not just hysteria about the news. So (laughs) I'm going to add you to that list and you're going to continue teaching me things because kind of like academic medicine, I find art to be a little intimidating because I don't even know where to look. So um, I think you just kind of migrate to what you like and be curious. I think that's the biggest thing. Just be curious about what you see and who you encounter and what you hear. Yes. I, exactly. Like reading poetry and reading books that have nothing to do with medicine. Sometimes that's the best thing to get me excited about doing my job again. I don't know if that makes sense no, to you. It absolutely does. You, We yeah. all need to separate from this part of ourselves and, and nurture yes. ourselves in other ways. I yeah. Agree 100%. Yeah. That's really refreshing to hear from someone like yeah. you, who I know is a very accomplished human being and um, doing lots of interesting things and can somehow make space in her mind for molecular lung angiwine pathology <laughs> simultaneously, which sounds so intimidating to me. <laughs> so it my was mind, really my mind just bounces around and <laughs> connections between them all and just has a happy time. <laughs> so does mine, but it, it yeah, it bounces to like pop songs from when I was ten. It doesn't bounce to like lung pathology. So <laughs> I think I have a soundtrack. Maybe it's all pop songs. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. Well, it was really lovely to meet you. I appreciate you doing this. And uh, it was really good talking to you. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow GYM pathology specialist, Dr. David Cullen. Dr. Cullen received a PhD in chemistry from McGill University. After this, he went to medical school at the University of Toronto, where he also completed pathology residency and was chief resident. He was then a clinical fellow in women's and perinatal pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, where he has since been an associate pathologist. So uh, David is here as a part of my YGUM pathology series, where I'm asking folks in the field how they came to study this area and how they uh, chose pathology in general. So Dr. Colin or David, how are you doing? And thank you so much for joining me. I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for the opportunity to join you on the podcast. And uh, like, please call me David. Yeah. Okay. You call me Natalie. Just go from there. (laughs) So can you tell me more about yourself aside from the biographical things that I've listed above. Where did you grow up? Were you in a scientific family? And how did you end up in Boston? Yeah. So I originally grew up in in Toronto, Canada. Both my parents were in medical fields. My dad was a psychiatrist and my mom um, was a nurse, but neither one of them could um, really stay on the side of blood. So I guess that's why they both ended up in mental health. Um, (laughs) That's amazing. Obviously, I, mean, I didn't ended, inherit that because I ended no, up in pathology. No, you ended up as a pathologist, like as far away from mental health as possible, except for maybe our own mental health, which is a separate <laughs> podcast. But yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, so I guess medicine was always on my radar, but I always enjoyed basic science. And throughout school, I really enjoyed chemistry and physics. When I went away to university, I decided to study chemistry because that was what I really enjoyed at the time. And I had a few undergrad experiences in research where I'd work in different labs over the summer. And one of them I loved. I loved the research that it was. It was a biophysics lab. And I got along really, really well with the supervisor. And so I decided to pursue a uh, a PhD, which was in the chemistry department, but it was really more biophysics. Mm -hmm. And 
um, you know, it was just a fantastic five years. I loved research and people and how much flexibility you have with your time. Um, and I had seriously considered pursuing an academic postdoc. And I ultimately made the decision to apply to medical school instead and, and go through with that because even though basic research was, was fascinating, at a certain point, I just got a little bit fed up with working on a problem that only six other people in the world really care about. And I thought <laughs> medicine, you know, you can do more meaningful things. And, it, and certainly, I knew that medicine didn't close any doors on, on research. Um, and so I returned back to um, Toronto to do medical school. And during medical school, basically, like all of the rotations interested me. I enjoyed almost all of them. But, you know, I think it's a question of which specialty would you enjoy doing for the rest of your life, not just what you enjoy doing for four, four or six weeks in med school. Um, and I knew that there were some specialties like radiology and pathology that you don't get a lot of exposure to in medical school curriculums necessarily. And so I went out of my way to shadow some radiologists and some pathologists. And I felt like pathology was really a pretty good fit. I really enjoyed the day-to-day -day work. I enjoyed the opportunities for research. And so that's how I, I decided to go into pathology. And, you know, in some ways, I think it was a, a bit of a leap of faith because the day-to-day -day work of a pathologist really isn't representative of the, the first and second year lectures you get in pathology or the histology studying. And I think it's much more interesting than that, actually. You know, I really didn't care for histology and the pathology lectures were okay, but it's not like I loved them in, in med school. But I think practicing as a pathologist is just so much more fascinating than than what I think it's portrayed as in in the first couple of years of med school. That's really interesting that you say that. As I I teach histology, and I find I have to study really hard to teach it because so much of it is not anything that I do. Even when I teach, you know what I mean. Even when I teach GYN pathology, it's like pretty heavy on stuff that in day-to-day -day practice, you don't really focus on anymore. And I mean, forget about when I have to do like medical kidney or something, but it's like, I agree. And and when students come shadow me, they're like, oh, this is so interesting. And, you know, if they come to tumor ward with me and they can hear how it fits into a patient's overall care, I think that's a really good point that it's far afield from that in some ways. Totally. <laughs> so, and I think it's so much more interesting to look at different yeah. kinds of cancer than it is yeah. normal histology. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And there, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So um, you have a PhD in chemistry, which you said, um, and your thesis was on case-based imaging correlation spectroscopy, which I tried to read about and I, I did not understand it, but <laughs> you're free to try to explain it to me. I assume you have an elevator pitch. My husband has a PhD and he had to be able to tell people what it was in like two sentences for like parties and stuff, right? So Yeah, I mean, maybe... if you have trouble falling asleep at night, then I'd highly recommend reading my thesis. But otherwise, I think you can skip it. So we... <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> so we, fo <laughs> we focused on um, developing techniques to measure aggregation states and dynamics of fluorescently labeled membrane proteins. Oh, my goodness. And then okay. we, would, we would have collaborations with people to study different systems. So my thesis was about the technique, and then we would apply it to different things like the T-cell receptor or um, uh, CFTR, for example. The cystic oh, so I was going to, uh, yeah. So there, I was going to ask you if there was overlap between that and where you ended up. I mean, you, not you know, in but... in theory, there mm -hmm. there could be, but practically, there there really isn't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the 
the official answer is that, you know, my PhD taught me so many transferable skills, like a little bit of programming and, and how to write a paper mm-hmm. and critical thinking skills. But, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, there's very little overlap between my PhD, which is very basic science and, and things I'm involved with now, which are much more clinical. Well, I, I certainly, I, I bet it helped you build the building blocks of, of, Basically, you were able to hit the ground running in terms of research, I'm sure, more so than some other folks. But still, I, I love that. Um, maybe you could record yourself in a 20-minute version talking about your PhD for those nights when people are tossing and turning. <laughs> <laughs> I hear they're having celebrities read on those um, fall asleep apps. So you could... Um, you're gonna, you're gonna get together. With well, them. I don't. I don't think I'm a celebrity, and I don't have you know a great radio voice either. So I don't. Know you if do a actually. Market it's, for it. it's a good voice, in in my ears at least. So, <laughs> um, so I've interviewed um, different people in medicine and science, and I see different themes emerge. It's, it seems like there are some people who say, um, "I always knew I wanted to do pathology. I zeroed in on it just because I loved it when I was in medical school." And then there are some people, uh, perhaps like me, who are going through medical school and kind of like some things and then started crossing things off a list. And I I knew someone who was a pathologist. I saw her being a pathologist and I thought I could do that. And the same thing happened to me in residency. I saw folks doing GYM pathology and I thought I could do that. That's pretty great. So um, you said that what you experienced in medical school was very different than what you do now. So how did you end up choosing pathology and then specifically GYM pathology? What made you choose that? Yeah. So in medical school, I rotated through, you know, all of the required clinical areas. And then I also went out of my way to really bulk up on pathology electives to get exposure to PATH to help confirm that, you know, it's a specialty where, um, you know, I think I'd be happiest. And I certainly have no regrets Uh um, in that um, respect. And if there are any medical students listening, I should point out that, you know, I graduated med school in 2012. So that was nine years ago. And you know, if I talk to um, some of my past classmates, pathologists in general are very, very happy. And comparatively mm-hmm. speaking, we're not nearly as burnt out as some other surgical subspecialties, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have no regrets looking back mm-hmm. on that. And pathology was a great, I found like the, the day-to-day work really fascinating. I found the opportunities for research interesting. And I really just liked everyone in the path department who I interacted with and met. They were all just um, very happy to teach and enthusiastic and happy to have med students around. Mm-hmm. So that was a great environment. Mm-hmm. And then how did you pick GYN pathology? Yeah. So, you know, during residency, I really enjoyed almost all of surgical pathology, you know, some things you might like a little bit more, but eventually, you know, you need to put your foot down and pick a subspecialty and think about what you might want to go into. And I, I wanted some things that would keep my doors open and, and not close any opportunities for me in the future. And so you know, I wasn't entirely sure what the job market would be like. And so I wanted something relatively broad. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that GYN pathology offers. But I think what really drew me to GYN path was the variety of cases. There's benign cases and malignant cases. And Mm -hmm. you get to see the vulva, the cervix, the endometrium, all of like the crazy myometrial and mesenchymal tumors, ovary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you go into breast pathology, all, you know, virtually all you look at are you know, epithelial, yeah. invasive ductal carcinomas, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, kidney tumors are awesome, but if you specialize in GU pathology, 90, 90% of what you see is is prostate. And so I think there's a tremendous amount of variety in GYN pathology, which is awesome. And I think it really lends itself to research opportunities for that reason, because I feel like because there are so many different tumors and sites that we look at, I think there's more low-hanging fruit from a research perspective. And there are lots of interesting questions that I don't really think have been 
addressed in GYN? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing that I tell people about our field is that the clinicians are amazing. I, I have such good interactions with GYN oncologists. They're just imminently reasonable and really easy to talk to. They are. The ones we have at the Brigham are just phenomenal to work with. And we have great tumor boards every week where they ask great pathology questions. Yes. And we have really great interactions with them in the in the frozen section room as well. So yeah, they are awesome. I, yeah. And the frozen sections, that's another thing that I think is one of the best parts of GYM pathology that we still really matter interoperatively for very many patients. So you're pretty, you're very early in your career. You started, you said you started residency in 2012. And I That's right. And so AP residency in in yes. Canada's five years long. We do a year of a rotating AP, internship right? and then four years of AP. Yeah. Okay. So you didn't do you it's not standard for Canadian pathology residents to do CP, right? That's, That's a right. Most field. almost all almost all Canadian path residents will just do AP. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And it's five years. That's mm -hmm. Yeah, the wow. first year is rotating internship. So I did like a month of GYN oncology and a month mm -hmm. of orthosarcoma and a month of gen surge sarcoma and a month of like PEDS solid tumor clinic. So you get to see a lot of clinical oncology specialties to see how mm -hmm. pathology gets to interact with them and, you know, mm -hmm. read read the path reports or see them in the frozen section room. That's great. Yeah. That sounds like a really good experience. So you're very early. You're, I, I was starting my fellowship in 2012 and you were starting residency. So you're a bit younger than I am. And you're, so you're still early in your career, but you're already pretty widely published. My side question for people like you is, are you tired? But you don't actually have to answer that question. But <laughs> it, seems, it seems like- I am. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> that makes me feel slightly better. It seems like you focus in part on molecular pathology and applying diagnostic molecular techniques to GYN tumors. It seems like you're very focused on not only you know, novel molecular findings, but also how those can be sort of applied diagnostically and maybe right, even therapeutically. Right. So you did this PhD in, I don't want to say it right, case-based <laughs> case -based image correlation spectroscopy. So how, how was it going from something like that to getting started in research in GYM pathology? And how did you come to put your focus where you put it? So, you know, I think when you're first starting out in an area, it's really difficult to know what good research questions are and, and how to get started. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're just beginning, it's really critical to have great mentors who can give you interesting ideas on, on projects to work on. And I certainly had that when I started my fellowship with Chris Crum and Marisa Nucci and Brooke Howitt, who was mm -hmm. at the Brigham at the time. Mm -hmm. And they are like, you know, oh, you know, you should look at this or look at that. And I think it would be fun to do a project about this. And, you know, when they first mention it, you don't really know what they're talking about or why it may be particularly interesting, right? Yeah. Especially at the very beginning of your fellowship. Yeah. And then, you know, with time, as you spend longer on the project, you begin to, you know, appreciate its significance. And then as, as it develops, then you start to have other ideas about spinoffs and other things that could, you know, act as follow-up projects from it. So I think with, with time, people... Um, begin to develop their own research ideas, but that certainly wasn't the case for me to be to start off with. Yeah, so this segues nicely into the next question. So, what the, it seems like the first, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. The first paper you wrote as a GYN pathology person was the paper on SMARC A4 deficient sarcoma. So, what was that experience like? I assume that the project was somewhat formed when you got there, and that was one of your first experiences. So what do you remember about that? Yeah. So actually that project wasn't 
formed at all when I arrived. That was oh. that project was started based on a Dana Farber pathology review case we were we were reviewing at the time. Oh, and so it came up while you were a fellow. It came up, or it might, maybe it was a departmental consult. But in any case, uh -huh. it came up when when I was a fellow, and it was a uh -huh. case. It was a clinical case that we were reviewing at the time. Okay. And Brooke, Brooke said, you know, oh, I think this might be a really weird, you know, unusual tumor. You know, it looks like small cell carcinoma of the, of the ovary hypercalcemic type, but it's happening in this patient's uterus, not in the ovary. And the the patient was young. I think she was in her late twenties or early thirties. And we did a few immunostains and we were like, yeah, you know, I think this is like, you know, perhaps a unique entity, one that may, may not have been reported elsewhere. You know, in the literature, there, there were reports of malignant rhabdoid tumors. Mm -hmm. And I think some of those were probably this entity, but when those were reported, people didn't have the smart a 4 immunohistochemistry and switch sniff complexes weren't really known. And so they didn't really know what was driving them. But in any case, we did have smart a 4 ihc because of small cell carcinoma of the ovary hypercalcemic type. And so I think this came up at around September the 20th when we got this case clinically. Well, that was and conveniently the, timed. When the USCAP deadline, I think, was like the 27th that year. So we had a week to, to turn this one case into a series. And so I like you know, rummage through the slide filing room at Brigham trying to find uh, additional cases. And we found four more. So we were up to five cases that we put together that week and we threw it in as an abstract. So it came together in in a week, really, for the abstract. And then over the next couple of months, I, I kind of fleshed it out with more IHC and molecular. And then I wrote it up and submitted it, I think, that December. So the project came together and, you know, was finished holy, pretty quickly. Holy actually. moly. So you looked at the case at the beginning of... <laughs> I'm sorry. September. You submitted it that year and had it written up by December of that year? Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. That's incredible. No wonder I thought it was already fully formed because you published it so soon after you started your fellowship. That's very impressive. Yeah. Well, you know, the Brigham's a crazy place. Yeah. And I didn't really know what I had gotten into when I arrived mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. summer because everyone there is like very smart, very driven. Everyone's yes. very enthusiastic and things just happen faster there. That's great. That's yeah. really good. I mean, what a great environment to learn in, right? So that segues nicely to talking about your work environment. So this podcast is also for people deciding whether or not they want to be pathologists or whether or not they even want to be physicians. So for those who don't know what someone at a you know large referral academic medical center, what do you do in a day? What's your job like? Yeah. So just like other academic pathologists, about two thirds of the time I'm on service and the one third of the time I'm off service. When I'm on service, I'll meet in the morning with the resident or the fellow I'm working with and sign out with them. So we sit at the multi-header and review cases. At, at Brigham, GYN is completely separated from the rest of the, the department. So everything's subspecialized. But even within GYN, we have four different services. So mm -hmm. some days I'll only look at biopsies or placentas or the big resections mm -hmm. or the, uh, the Dana-Farber pathology reviews where we review the pathology of all of the, the patients who are coming for treatment. Mm -hmm. As well, some days I'll cover frozen sections, and the frozen sections are, are actually totally subspecialized for GYN as well. So I, when I cover frozens, I only cover GYN frozens. Mm -hmm. So that, that will take up the morning where we review the cases, and then in the afternoons, I'll typically you know sit at my computer and edit the reports and, and key them out. Sort of scattered throughout the day, we'll, we'll have grand rounds and multiple teaching conferences. It's a very academic department. So basically every day there's a visiting speaker who, who comes through. 
and will often give like a, a research-based talk or sometimes it's general surgical pathology, but they're, they're usually great. And then a couple of times a week, we'll have consensus conferences where people show interesting or challenging cases that they've seen over the past couple of days and get opinions from other pathologists about how, how the case should be approached and what other people think about it. Yeah. So that's when I'm on service. And then when I'm off service, I'll spend most of my time doing research, trying to write papers or put talks together, um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That sounds nice. And I think we're all looking forward to getting back to that experience of doing all those things you're talking about in person, because I imagine a lot of it right now is still on. Yeah. At least some of it. it, It's virtually all virtual and it's, you know, it's not nearly the same. No, Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, we, you know, we had so many social events in the department pre pandemic. And now, mm-hmm. you know, it's unfortunately, it's just a big switch. I don't think clinical care has, has suffered, but it's certainly not nearly as, as social as it used to be. Yeah, I agree. And that, I mean, as pathologists, we're saying that. So, right, it must be <laughs> some trickle down pretty far. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So now we'll, we'll do something fun. You're from Toronto. I don't know anything about Toronto. So what should I know about it as someone who's never been there? And what was it like to grow up there? Toronto? What can I say about Toronto? Toronto's the most international city in the world, I think. Mm. Um, and there are, there are immigrants from all over the world. And that means that you have a phenomenal variety of different cuisines and foods that you can have and enjoy. And so I've lived in Montreal and Boston and, you know, those places are okay for food. Boston has good seafood and stuff. But really, I think the food scene in Toronto is is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. What's your so favorite food in Toronto? Hopefully What's when things favorite? open up and you're able to go, then I can th- give you some oh, yeah. restaurant suggestions. Assuming yeah. the restaurants are still in business after. Well, what's your pandemic. favorite kind of food in Toronto? Like, what's your um, Wow. You know, there's great Thai places I really like. Good Vietnamese uh-huh. places. Oh, yeah. Um, that There's a great Chinatown with so many wonderful restaurants. Oh, that sounds lovely. Now you're making me crave yeah, restaurant food again. <laughs> I know. This is so hard. I'm so tired of cooking. <laughs> and and you said you lived in Montreal and Boston. So you've you've pretty much been in like cold places for most of your life. That's right. Like. So what do you do for fun when you're not working? Well, I mean, pre-COVID, we used to love to travel, mm-hmm. eat out at restaurants, go to see hockey games. And mm-hmm. obviously now those are no longer an option. So my life has gotten like considerably more boring. And now, you know, my wife and I will go for like long walks on the weekend. We play board games. The The most exciting thing I did last weekend was hang up a few pictures on the wall. So this, <laughs> <laughs> this is my awesome. life now. Yeah. I joke with my family that it's become like little house on the brain, <laughs> which I don't know if that was popular in Canada, but um, it was, I totally watched it growing up. Okay, There was like a whole book that I read of little house on the prairie when I was young, where the dad was nailing shingles to the roof and the kids just ran around the grass trying to find the nails that he dropped. And I was like, we're, we're almost there. (laughs) We're not far from that. (laughs) We got to get everyone vaccinated and get out of here. (laughs) Long walks. That's amazing. (laughs) up a picture. I hope in 10 years, you and I can laugh about this. I hope so. I hope so. It was Really, really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much for the invitation to join you. I had a blast. Yeah. All right. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.
Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow GYN pathology specialist, Dr. Javier Matias Gu. He received his MD from the University of Barcelona and his PhD from Autonomous University of Barcelona. His training in pathology was completed at Hospital de San Pau in Barcelona, Spain. After this, he completed a postdoctoral fellowship in research pathology at New England Medical Center, Tufts University in Boston, with a part-time activity at Mass General Hospital um, with Dr. Scully. Currently, he is a professor of pathology at the University of Barcelona and Laida. He is also chairman of pathology at the hospital Universitari Arnau de Villanova de Laida and Hospital Universitari de Bel, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this wrong, Belviched in Barcelona, Spain. Perfect. He is the president of the International Society of GYN Pathologists. He is widely published in the area of GYN Pathology and served on the panel, which composed the 2020 WHO classification of tumors of the female genital tract. So Dr. Matias Yu, or Javier, is here today to um, add to my series on GYN pathology where I'm talking to specialists about how they arrived here and what's happening in our field now. So, Javier, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Very, you know, thank you very much, Natalia. I'm very well. Uh, it's really a pleasure to, to, to be with you uh, today, yeah, of course. Yeah, I think I might have even put some Portuguese pronunciations into the intro. So for all of my international listeners, I apologize. I am trying. So I had a fellow from Brazil for the last year, so I think I, he influenced me. So could you tell me more about yourself aside from the biographical information I've provided? Did you come up in a scientific family and how did you end up working where you are now? Well, my, my father was a, a medical doctor, was a physician, but he was he, he worked in internal medicine. So he he was not really very very interested in science, although he was he was a very good physician and you know loved by his patients. And I had an uncle, an uncle who was a who was gynecologist, mm-hmm. and he he stepped down as as in, in clinical practice and he he started doing research in cancer. So he died of melanoma when I was very small, but his figure has also is inspiring to me. So mm-hmm. maybe that was that was the the, the point in, in which I, I got interest in science. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really I really wanted to to be a biologist when I was a kid. Okay. And, and be be involved in cellular and molecular biology. But at that time, you know, the 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 structure of, of research in Spain was not very well developed. Mm. So my father, mm, uh, you know, commented with me the possibility of being of being a medical doctor as a as a way to do what I was planning to do. He said, "Look, there are some specialties that are uh, working in the laboratory, and maybe by doing so, you will be able to." to do clinical practice, but also doing research. So I thought oh, that, that's, that's good. That's a good advice. And that's the reason why I started medicine and why I, I choose pathology after that. So how did you know what cellular biology was as a child? That doesn't... Well, because, you know... Was it, was it your I, uncle? Well, well, yeah. I mean, as, as soon as you are a teenager, you start seeing the figures of, of Nobel Prizes and mm-hmm. people... Uh, you know that are doing research, and and in Spain we have a couple of Nobel prizes, Severo Ochoa, and and Santiago Ramón y Cajal. I was very impressed with that, 
and I thought that you know that was very very interesting. So so yeah. that that was so my... some kids some kids want to be astronauts, some kids want to be like firefighters, and you wanted to be someone. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Well, I, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to be also tennis player, but <laughs> okay, okay. That's fine. Spain also has good tennis players. Too. So that's really funny. So I've interviewed many people who are GYN pathologists and pathologists in general. And I see that a lot of people have a person who inspired them, sort of like someone they were already doing pathology and then they saw someone who was doing GYN pathology and they thought, I want to do that. Or sometimes people just come along to medicine and say, I have this field of interest and I think pathology matches it the best. So, But it sounds like maybe what you're telling me is that you might have both. So do you want to tell me how you chose pathology and then how you chose GYN pathology as a specialty? Yeah, I, well, I choose pathology because, you know, it, my my father also oriented uh, to that, you know, look for a, he said, look for a specialty related to laboratory. So in, in, in Spain, in the Faculty of Medicine, there was the possibility of students being incorporated in, in departments. So when I started medicine, I, I applied for this. So I, I was incorporated in the pathology department when I was even a student. So I realized, my goodness, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is, and then when I finished the, the medical school, I, I, it was obvious that I wanted to be a pathologist. I applied for a position in Hospital San Pao. Mm -hmm. and, and I started working there until when I was uh, in the third year of my residency, uh, Dr. Jaime Pratt, who, who, who is a well-known gynecological pathology with uh, a long career in, in, in Mass General, he came back to Spain and he was appointed the director of the hospital, of the director of the pathology department. Mm -hmm. And really that was, that, you know, was a point in my, in my life, you know, because getting along with him, I mean, I, I have learned pathology with him. He was the one that uh, told me, you have to go for GYM pathology because mm -hmm. you are going to be with me. So this that was uh, and I, I I think you you uh, he has been a very important person in in my professional life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, you're not the first person to say that about him. So to say that you are widely published in the area of GYN pathology is a bit of an understatement. You focus in part, especially recently, on endometrial cancers, which is a field that recently is seeing a real expansion. I think as an interest in molecular classification, not only in that but also in how it's applied clinically and how maybe patients deserve or merit different treatments. So I'd like to hear about how you got started in research. It sounds like it's something you had interest in from early in your life, but there's a big change. There's a big journey between being someone interested in it and being as successful as you are. And then how did you decide where to put your focus? If you can answer those two things. Well, it, it was again, Jaime, Jaime Pratt, mm -hmm. who, introduced me, he showed me or he taught me that uh, my professional career should be uh, clinical practice, mm -hmm. research, and teaching. She, she taught me that, you know, you have mm -hmm. to be excellent in, in these three fields. So I, 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 I have tried to do so. And then, you know, working together, he decided that we had to start doing research you know, we're talking on, on 1980s, in the 80s, mm -hmm. so in, in the final 80s. So, you know, I start 
playing because that's the word with molecular biology. Uh, you know, there was there was a, a department in the hospital, so I went there playing with my hands. But you know, it, it, it wasn't working. So at some point, Jaime thought you have to go to the states, and you have to learn molecular biology there. And mm-hmm. the best place he said is the New England Medical Center in Boston. Mm-hmm. with Dr. Delelis, Dr. Wolf, and, you know, and that's where I came to the States and I got involved in molecular pathology and and, and the endometrium was because Jaime, uh, you know, wanted to, to work on an ovarian pathology and endometrial cancer, but to give me a little bit of, I don't know, more, uh, you know, being more committed with one area, he decided that I would be more focused on, on endometrial. So that's that's the area which I, I, I took. And I, as you said, you know, it's very, it's very interesting. At the beginning, we were using the tools that we had, mm-hmm. very descriptive pathologies. So mm-hmm. gene after gene, one gene, single gene approaches. Right. Now this has been now different approaches, but this right. is more or less the beginning, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a frame shift. You know, I, I don't. What do you think that's going to look like in 10 years? Well, I don't know, but but I don't know, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that pathology is morphology is very important. Yes. You know, when I was in, in the States, there were two two persons that really influenced me. One one was Ron Ellis in New England Medical Center and the other one was Dr. Scully in Mass General. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Scully, you know, you have heard about him, you know, he was... From pretty much everyone, yes. Yeah, okay. And don't... Yeah. He influenced me a lot, a lot you know. Yeah. Yeah. But Dr. Dr. Delelis also, and he was always saying, Javier, Javier, we have to bring genes to morphology. That was he was saying. Mm-hmm. Our task is to... Be... And that's what I have tried to, to do. And, you know, when I am... Looking at the microscope, I'm trying to guess the molecular alterations that are there. Why, you know, a tumor that has a MELF pattern of invasion? What, what that? Why that happens? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why a tumor has a mixed morphology? Or let's microdissect. So, I'm, my research is always focused on understanding what happens at the morphological level. So this is the, this is the, 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 the topic that I like the most, you know, mm-hmm. understanding what happens at the morphology. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I think that the molecular classification is important and it should be interpreted in the, in the setting of morphology, but there are still questions to be answered and, and we have to, to find appropriate targeted therapies this we are far from what happened what is happening in the lung in lung cancer so i think there is room for improvement and i am i still have uh, eight years of practicing so i i, I am look forward to, oh, to you already know how many more years you have left <laughs> yeah, in spain in spain we have a date in which you have to retire and it's eight years from now but still, what happens if you don't no, that is not possible in Spain. So, and in Europe, Europe is different. You know, in Europe, even uh, you have a date and you have to retire at that date. This is that different magical. in the States. Yeah. Well, well, you know, some, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen after when I when I retired. I, I will try to help 
people, but there are so many things in life that maybe I will I will do other things. I don't yeah, know. Definitely. Yeah, that's great. So see, like I have a I have a friend back to the endometrial cancer thing who thinks that we won't be FIGO grading in ten years or something to that effect that it'll merge somehow and morphology will still matter, but there will be other things that clinicians want to know instead. Morphology is always gonna be there. That's right. my personal viewpoint. Exactly. And so then, you know, I have clinicians at my institution who want us to do P53 on all endometrial cancers, which I know from listening to your talk last week that you said you're doing not only for the patients, but also to educate yourself to learn what's happening. I think it's just an interesting time where there's not a uniformity of practice and it'll be interesting to see how that develops. So fully agree with you fully agree with you yeah yeah i know uh, we were talking before we started recording about how maybe this question is a little bit different the way i'm asking it in the states is different but you have a phd or what we would call a phd and a, a md which is you can explain the difference in europe but a lot of your studies are are what i would consider not translational research some of them are more basic science oriented they're always still focused on GYN pathology, but it, it, it involves things like animal models and things that folks without basic science training aren't maybe capable of doing. So can you talk to me about how that has influenced, do you think, your research compared to someone who doesn't have that same kind yeah. of training? Yeah. P- PhD is different, at least in Spain. Mm-hmm. It's different. I mean, you can do the, the PhD uh, program is four years. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a research oriented. You you have mm-hmm. to to end with a project and results and articles. But the, the, you can do that while you are practicing as a pathologist. So this oh. it's different. So obviously that requires extra work. Yeah. But you know, and you know what happened is that that obvious as, as I said with Jaime, you know I had interest in research from the from since I was a kid and when working with Jaime, I was focused on on that. And then when I, when, you know, at the beginning, as I mentioned before, that was uh, basically descriptive uh, molecular pathology. So this morphology mm-hmm. goes with that alteration, that morphology goes with that alteration. But then when I, when I decided to move to a different institution, because at some point after working 15 years with Jaime Pratt, uh, both of us decided that it was time for me to make my personal uh, professional life on my own. So I went to uh, another university, Yeda. Mm-hmm. And in that university, you know, I had uh, uh, the possibility of doing functional analysis. So what does it mean, functional analysis? So by descriptive molecular pathology, you know that this mutation or overexpression is associated with that morphology. But by doing functional, you have a seal line and you um, produce the changes appropriate mm-hmm. to change the morphology and to mm-hmm. see what changes in the in the behavior of the cancer cell line are made by this change. And this is in vitro and you can do the same uh, in animal models. So I have been always practicing pathology, but what uh, what I am doing since, I don't know, since 15 years ago is having my team. In my team, uh, I have, you know, postdoctoral fellows, associated researchers that work with me, and obviously they take care of the animal models, they take care of the, of the, uh, of the in vitro studies, but we discuss together and always always the research of the group is focusing on understanding 
what happens in, in related to the morphology, you know. But this is this is the history, and so that was a, really a, a possibility for me, if uh, you know, changing from descriptive pathology to functional descriptive molecular pathology to functioning uh, molecular pathology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I took full advance of this, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a sort of another level of understanding of the what we're seeing morphologically, which is what what your interest is. That's really um, interesting. So um, I, I do want to sneak in one question here that wasn't in our outline. You're now the president of the International Society of Gynecological Pathologists, so congratulations! It's a recent. Uh, I think the use cap is when you took over last last month. Yeah, last month. It feels much longer ago. Do you have like a vision for things that you want to change? Is there anything special that you hope to accomplish? Or? Well, I, I, you know, I know the society quite well because, mm-hmm. again, Jaime Pratt was president of Egypt, mm-hmm. and so being with him, although I, at that time I, I, we were not working together, but we, we have been close, you know, always. So I, I know, and then, and then Elvio, when Elvio Silva was president of the society, I was incorporated in the board of director as, as member at large. Mm-hmm. So I know the, the rules of the society. And then, obviously, I have had, I have been president-elect under the presidency of Esther Oliva. So mm-hmm. I know, I know, and the, the society is beautiful, and you know, it's 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 working. Fantastically, we have a team working on the Egypt life in which we are a member. That uh, they work, they are fantastic. The, the atmosphere is fantastic. So my idea is to give full support to all these people. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I have some some issues, some topics that I, I would like to to do. The first is obviously I, I am not American. I am European, so mm-hmm. yeah, I think that, that that since my perspective, one one of my goals would be to open the society to geographic areas in which mm-hmm. the society is less well implanted, like Latin America, for example, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. China or Russia. Or, this mm-hmm. is one of the issues. The 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 the, the 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 second one is that you know now many societies um, feel the necessity to interact with associations of patients, and mm-hmm. I think that has not been done. For in, in Egypt, so this is one of the of the goals also that I, I would like to 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 achieve. And then finally, you know, I was talking with Nabina Singh and Joe Raban just uh, I think two days ago regarding that. Uh, you know, we would like to to as, the, as usually the president of Egypt develops a project. We would like to develop a project improving a staging of endometrial cancer. Mm. And if possible, that, that's going to be with interaction with the FIGO committee. So mm. I think this is one, the, the third goal of my presidency. And mm. that's it. That's it. Because this is, the, I think the, this is quite, uh, you know, that, that's a lot of work. And I think that, and keeping, keeping Egypt in the good shape as it is now. Yeah, that's a, those are three big goals. And I am always touched when a resident or a trainee or an early career person from around the globe reaches out to me to present at Journal Club. It makes everything that I do worthwhile because I'm helping someone who might not have a GYN pathologist at their institution to learn something and feel more confident. So, Egypt you know, life is fantastic. And so wonderful. you and the other members of the team 
um, that are behind ESG Live are fantastic. And, and it's a tremendous success and it's a tool to expand Egypt to, to yeah. around the world. But maybe for some specific areas, yeah. maybe we have to do specific, you know, actions, you know, because Absolutely. there are areas in which, you know, people don't speak English. English. So, yeah, yeah we, we, yeah. we maybe. Well, we certainly have enough Spanish speakers. Of I'm course, sure. of course. Latin America, <laughs> Latin America is fantastic. You know, the people yeah. is fantastic yeah. and they are enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah, there is a lot of hunger for, for learning and knowledge around the world. I have noticed that. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people who have reached out to me are from places that I wouldn't necessarily assume that everyone speaks English well enough to understand the videos that I make, but they do. So um, it makes me happy. And if we could make more availability, I think that would be even better. My, my English is going to be easier to be understood by people from Latin America. So, Latin America. So. <laughs> yeah, you're, well, yeah, and I'm sure your Spanish um, is perfect. And I wanted to ask you, I don't really understand, you seem to have a lot of jobs, and I don't know how that works. So, can you tell me, like, it seems like you're the director of multiple things. No, how, what is well, a typical day like for you? What is your work day like? Well, Does it depend whether or not you're on service or whether you're working with your research lab? Or no, first, first, you know, when when I when I decided to not working anymore with Jaime, I moved to this university, Yeda, and, and you know I am keeping the position there, and uh, you know I'm I'm there one one or two days uh, every week. But uh, five years ago, I I took the the chairmanship in a big really big hospital in, in Barcelona, the, the the one that has the higher activity in in gynecologic oncology. And mm -hmm. that's the place when I, where I work, uh, you know, most of the time. So obviously as a chairman, I have some administrative work and, you know, meetings. And I, you know, the, the rest of the day, I'm, I'm working as, as you, uh, you know, diagnosing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a, an organization in which you know, uh, I'm taking care of my my signing out activity, and then I, I I also see all the vast majority, let's say, of positive cases in GYN and, and also. So this 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 is my 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 practice, and then occasionally, let's say, two days a week, I have lab meetings with the with the researchers of my team. Mm -hmm. in which they explain me the results and we brainstorm a little bit on what we should do, what can help, the results on the animal models, the research. So this is more or less my activity. I, I, I work a lot, really. So yeah. In English, yeah. we would say that you wear many different hats. It doesn't really yeah. translate, probably, but you, it's sometimes I, I, it's almost like you drive to one place and get out of your car and you're a different person and then you go back to your other job and you're this other, you wear, so you sort of have different roles, but yeah, you must. Um, in in Spain, we, we say that, you know, if you want something to be done, mm -hmm. ask a, 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 a guy who busy is person. busy, who is a busy. busy. Person. Yeah, there's some saying like that in English as well, if you want yeah. something done well. So, you know, yeah. I don't know, since I am busy, people is asking me <laughs> doing things. And, You're efficient, yes, by yeah. default, yes. So th there's one other question I wanted to ask you. Um, since you have trained here in the United States and then you practice pathology in Europe, so you've seen people do it on, and certainly working with Dr. Pratt as well, you would know because he was here for a, a while. How do, What do you think are 
What is what to you are the differences in the way that pathology is practiced here versus there? Are well, there any big differences? Uh, in you know, in Europe is is heterogeneous. So let me, for example, yes, the the UK is more similar to 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 US, for example. Mm-hmm. But Spain, I think Spain, Italy, France, uh, Germany are quite similar. Mm-hmm. And we don't have clinical pathology. So, you know, mm. biochemist is a, is a different specialty with a different laboratory, immunology. So we are just anatomic pathology. That's probably the main difference. Mm-hmm. And and the level is fantastic. Let me tell you, you know, the level of, of pathology, the, you know, the diagnostic skills in Spain, in Italy, they, they are very good. So in that in that way, I don't see too many differences. And then there are the the tools, you know, the molecular tools, and that depends on the on the economic resources of each institution. Mm-hmm. In Spain, the mm-hmm. health system is public. Is the private care is is small. Mm-hmm. So this is also a big, a big difference because we we depend on the on the budget of the government, and the budget mm-hmm. is sometimes good, it sometimes is not that good. You know, when mm-hmm. when there is crisis, uh, there are cuts, and yeah. this, this is the situation. But the level is fantastic. Let me tell you. And when the Spaniards go to 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 the states, like like for example, Esther Oliva or mm-hmm. myself or Victor Victor Prieto, who is now. Mm-hmm. Chairman in 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 MD Anderson and you we are doing quite well. So you yeah, know the definitely. level is the level the level is good. So so yeah. really so I'm, the, I'm I'm proud I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the residents are only at the public hospitals in Spain. That's right. Well, right? there are a few public okay. a, a, a few a few private hospitals mm-hmm. that have residents, mm-hmm. and they are very good hospitals. But okay. they are okay. they, they are a few. It's okay. basically public hospitals, yes. Yeah, yeah. I remember when Esther was explaining to me how she matched. It was like you knew how many spots came up in a year at a given hospital, and so you almost apply to a hospital to do your training. Not, it's a little bit different in the United States. You sort of, of um, you know, know, about the match process. It's so complicated. <laughs> um, it actually just happened, but no, in um, Spain, as you, 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 you I mean, Esther yeah. explained that to you. Spain yeah. was Esther was a resident with us with Jaime. Brad yeah. and me, so and 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 we have a general examination for everybody is taking the examination, and uh-huh. then you are scored and you are number one or number number twenty thousand, and number oh, one or number one selects a specialty and place, mm-hmm. and number two everything but what has been chosen by number one, and this is so this is I think this is good. It's competitive. Is is good, yeah. and departments departments uh, you know are proud when they get good uh, numbers for example last last year uh, the resident the first resident in spain that took pathology came to my hospital in barcelona so i, I was proud and everyone so when you walk around for the rest of your life does everyone know oh she was number 66 and he was number two i mean do do is that public knowledge well uh, you know at the beginning it's well it's known Oh, you know, man. but when you are resident, oh, this was a good resident. But not, <laughs> yeah, but what if you're number two hundred? <laughs> yeah, no, well, but 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 you know, but let me tell you something. The the the, the number is not a, an absolute value. You know, I have had excellent residents that were not the first number, or you know, so yeah. because this is just an exam, and an exam is an imperfect way yeah. to. <laughs> 
to make a certification of people. They're so, actually making some of the exams here in the United States. You never, so you never practiced here, so you never had to go through taking all the step exams. But we have multiple ones. They're making some of them pass fail now because the the focus on the exam and the number that you got on this test was sort of overwhelming our medical students, like dominating their studies. So they're they're making it pass fail, and I don't really know how that's going to work, but. Certainly, there is an understanding that some people just don't test well, right? That's an that's a <laughs> good point. Yeah. So I did want to ask you just for fun. Just I mean, twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one have been difficult years. None of us are really traveling. I know we're all sort of getting used to digital life. But what do you do when you're not working? What do you do for fun? Well, I I like traveling, mm-hmm. really. And you know, I'm not an expert in art. But, you know, when I travel, I like to go to museums and learn. So, and really, when I retired, maybe I will try to learn more on art. But my, my favorite work, let's say, what I do for fun, as I said at the beginning, is playing tennis. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a good tennis player. I'm not a good tennis player, but I am playing tennis the most of the time, you know, I have uh, free time. So, uh, you know, weekends, even working days, if I can, at late, at almost night, playing tennis. This is very good for me to recharge myself, you know, and and I'm enjoying that very much. Now I'm getting old and, you know, I have problems, you know, my knees, but still I'm quite active and, yeah. Is tennis a popular sport in Spain? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. so you can always, you don't have trouble finding someone to play with. That's the stressful part about tennis. I suppose you can hit it into the wall, but you have to have someone to go with you, right? But even, even, you know, here we are playing in in clay, on clay. So this is outdoor. So even in in the COVID time, the distance is big. So we have been able to play tennis. So, and, and the, the weather here in Spain is very good. So we can pl- play outdoor, like in California, let's say. Yeah, and, it is. And, Beautiful. you know, and that's the reason why we have so many good tennis players like Nadal. And because, yes. you know, the, the weather conditions are very good. And, you know, and there is people like, like tennis. It is a yeah. fantastic sport. And the Australian have shown that this is one of the healthiest sport. I think, I I forget what study I read. It was a study about which sports people were able to play longest into their lives. Not only that, that, you know, life expectation is higher. And people who play tennis? Yeah, that, you know, obviously in Australia, which has the same weather as Spain, similar weather, tennis is also quite popular. So they have good sample size, let's say, (laughs) and... And, and, you know, they showed that I think tennis and badminton, the sports that were related to with rackets, were the, the healthiest. I'm playing this morning, This today is, is, is afternoon here in Spain, and this morning I have played tennis, and, you know, because today is Sunday. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's you know, for me it's fantastic. It's, uh, you know, when, I, when, when, you know, in the, in, in the worst period of the first wage of the COVID, we were not allowed to play tennis. I, I really, I was missing that, you know, yeah. but now yeah, it's okay. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm glad to hear things are getting back to normal a little bit. It's not happening like that everywhere. Do you have any other closing thoughts? Or No, I'm really happy talking with you. It has been really a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And I'm honored that you selected me as a people 
for being interviewed. I'm really happy that I got to talk to you, especially at the beginning of your term as president. I'm really looking forward to you being at the helm of ISJEP and and seeing what's going to happen. So it was a pleasure to speak with you as well. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Have a nice day. Okay. Bye. Bye.